So as we come upon a new year, we are uh, beginning a new series on what is a healthy church. Um, so that's the big idea, and I'm going to use several books to kind of get us through that. Uh, we just finished up the Gospel of John, where, where John, he ends his gospel with Jesus commissioning the church to be a, a faithful witness, to feed God's sheep. So now we're going to transition to look at, you know, what's next? So Jesus commissions them to go out. Well, now we get to see, see the church going out. So we're going to spend a few weeks looking at the early church in the book of Acts. Um, we're just going to look at the first five chapters of Acts. We're not going to go through the whole entire book. But we're going to look at the first five chapters, just how the church got started, the mission going out, the Holy Spirit coming. And then um, as we look at those first five chapters, just how they began to meet regularly on, um, on Sunday, the, the Lord's Day. And then we're going to transition over to the pastoral epistles. That's where we're going to spend most of our time in 2023. Pastoral epistles are those books, First um, and Second Timothy and Titus. So Paul wrote the pastoral epistles to show us what a healthy church should look like. So that's where we're going to spend a lot of 2023. What does a healthy church look like? What's the structure of a church? What's our purpose as far as of Christ? So that's our kind of um, just our view of this year, just where we're headed. So this morning, we, um, we start where the gospel left off. Um, if you brought your Bible, let's turn or swipe, scroll, whatever you need to do to put God's perfect word in front of you. Let's turn to Acts chapter 1 this morning. In Acts chapter 1, verse 1, the word of God says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, uh, he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these of one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with, with the women and, um, and with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers." In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons 
was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with, with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, uh, Dama, which is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, and, um, who was also called Justice, and Matthias, and they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Let's pray. Father, to think that... Um, this chapter starts this um, incredible um, institution that we call the church. Um, we know that there's been people of faith for generations prior to this, but something new is happening here. And so Lord, we, um, we stand in awe of the work, the acts that take place to see your work, to see the gospel continue to go out. We stand in awe today to see how you continue to um, fulfill this promise of Acts. And so, Lord, help us to um, see our place, to see our purpose in the church, to see how we were saved for a reason, for a purpose, not just to sit in a pew or a chair, but to be and live on mission. So, Lord, Give us those eyes today to see this. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So Acts chapter 1, I, in my opinion, it's one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. Uh, there's so much to unpack here. We, we see Jesus making a promise, a couple promises to his followers um, in, in verse 8 about the Holy Spirit and our purpose as witnesses. Uh, we see that Jesus ascends back to heaven. It's pretty cool. And they're just kind of just staring uh, and these angels are like, hey, what, what, are you, what are you staring at? There's work to be done. Let's, let's go. Come on. Uh, we, we see um, um, disciples pick a replacement for Judas. So there's a lot to unpack here. And in verse 1, we see the recipient of the book of Acts, a man named Theophilus. Now, we don't really know anything about him. Um, most believe he's a, at least a real person, but some scholars don't even think this is a real man. Um, his name in Greek means loved by God or friend of God. So some people think um, that the author is just writing as just a generic view of like to the friends of God, to those who are loved by God. So they think Theophilus is more of less of a person and they think that he's more of just like, you know, these individuals, these friends of God. 
But his name, Theophilus, clues us in in the authorship of Acts. The author says in the first book, O Theophilus, which, you know, meaning this is the second book. If there is this first book, and so Luke chapter 1, verse 3, we read, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Acts is essentially volume two of Luke's gospel. Um, so which makes the author of Acts also Luke. We learn from Colossians 4 that Luke, he's a physician. So you, maybe you've heard like Luke's a doctor. That's, that's how we know this from Colossians 4. Luke was, uh, he was not an eyewitness or even an immediate disciple of Jesus. But he claims that he spent a lot of time, we see this in, in this little um, introduction in Luke, that he spent a lot of time researching the life and death of Christ. And then he took time to write out this, what he calls an orderly account for you. So this morning, I really want us to hunker down uh, in verse 8 of, of chapter 1 of, of Acts and just allow verse 8 to exposit the rest of the chapter. So much going on, um, but I think verse 8, if we just take time and look at verse 8, we can see um, an outline not only for chapter 1, but in the entire book of Acts. And so I believe verse 8 shows us shows us the Lord's plan to accomplish the Great Commission. Uh, so the Great Commission, you find that um, at the end of Luke's gospel. You find it at the end of Matthew's gospel, um, that, that the gospel is meant to go out to all nations, that we are called to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. So I believe verse 8 is the Lord's plan to accomplish the Great, some great Commission. So let's, let's look down at verse 8 again. Verse 8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So here in the audience, Jesus is speaking to the apostles. We see in verse 5 where Jesus had given the apostles specific instructions to wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father. So Jesus gathers them together. And after the apostles ask an important question, which we'll come back to in a minute, Jesus makes two important promises to his followers. And these two promises are what God is going to use to accomplish this great commission. So let's, let's look at these two promises found in verse 8. The first promise, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So this is the coming of the Holy Spirit is what Jesus is referring to um, back in verse 4 when he mentions this promise of the Father. He's referring to this coming of the Holy Spirit. This promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit is something we will see next week when we look at Acts chapter 2. But Jesus promises his followers power when the Holy Spirit comes. As we wrapped up the Gospel of John, we learned a lot about the Holy Spirit. You, you learned so much about the Holy Spirit in John's Gospel. Uh, we learned who he is and what he does. So let's do a, just a quick recap. In John's gospel, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the paraclete. The paraclete is a, a title translated as most of our Bible says helper or comforter, advocate or counselor. 
And he told the disciples that it would be to their advantage that he would leave because if he does not leave, then the helper cannot come. So I, it's just amazing to think that, that, that Jesus is saying it's to your advantage that he would leave and not be among you, that he would send the Holy Spirit. Most of us don't think that way. We would rather have Jesus walking alongside us. Jesus says, no, you're wrong. It's better that you have the Holy Spirit coming alongside you guys. And so the coming of this paraclete is how you will receive power. Until this point in human history, the Holy Spirit did not permanently dwell inside people of faith. God would send the Holy Spirit to empower people in the Old Covenant for a specific task. But when the Father sends the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, then this is this permanent indwelling. This begins this new epoch or new period for mankind. The coming of the Holy Spirit is the final delineation from the Old Covenant to this New Covenant. The coming Holy Spirit will be the power the church needs to accomplish the Great Commission. This power enables Christians to do something and to be something that they could never do or be on their own. In fact, we see three aspects of the Holy Spirit's power demonstrated in the second half of chapter 1. Now, I know I just said Holy Spirit doesn't come until chapter 2, so how can we see the demonstration of the Holy Spirit in the second half of chapter 1? Well, if you remember, near the end of John's gospel in chapter 20, Jesus breathed on his disciples and told them to receive the Holy Spirit. And so I, I believe this receiving of the Holy Spirit would be something similar to what we'd see in the Old Testament, this temporary indwelling until they receive the permanent indwelling of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But in the second half of chapter 1, we already see the power of the Holy Spirit at work. So let's look down to, uh, to verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room. And this possibly could be the same upper room where they took the Lord's Supper or even went back to after the, um, uh, the, the, the crucifixion. So they were gathered in this upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Notice Judas, the son of Iscariot, is not there. Um, Peter later tells us what happened to him. Uh, all these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. There's so much even just in these few verses. Uh, notice his brothers are here. Um, we, it's, it's amazing to think that Jesus' own brothers weren't his early disciples. They, 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 didn't, they didn't follow Jesus early. It, it took the death and resurrection for his own brothers uh, to begin to follow him. And you could kind of see that. I mean, imagine growing up being a sibling of, of Jesus. That would be really hard. Uh, think of like the dynamics at your house with your parents. You're always compared to Jesus. And, and so the, the brothers, like, like James, who wrote the book of James, brother of Jesus, was not an early follower of Jesus. And, but here it seems like he's gathered with these other disciples in the room with this Mary the mother and some other women and they're all there together. And, and, and notice that all these individuals 
were of one accord devoting themselves to prayer. So prayer was something super important already early in the church. And, and, and they're of one accord. That's the power and the role of the Holy Spirit in the church body. We, we clearly see this, this desire for unity um, in Ephesians 4 from the Holy Spirit. That's one of the Holy Spirit's um, roles is to create unity among the body of Christ, unity among diversity. Uh, Ephesians 4 says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So you see there's this unity here in the Spirit. There is one body, one Spirit. Listen to all the, like the one language here. One body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So the oneness is important to the early church. The Holy Spirit unifies the church body. Whenever you see a church divided, then you can safely assume that this is a church that is not being led by the Spirit. It's more likely a church being led by the flesh. Unity in a church is hard to come by, isn't it? It takes a group of like-minded people, like-minded in, not that we're like-minded in this, this is a social club, or this is a political party. We're like-minded in that we all gather this morning to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, that he's redeemed us, that he's coming back for us. So we're gathered this morning like-minded in that. We're humbling ourselves and putting the interests of others before our own. That's what it looks like to be a unified church. And for us to be such a young church, I've always been amazed at the unity that I feel among us. We, we have people of differ, differing political views, varying opinions on how we should address social injustices. And yet I love watching you love one another. It, it, it's so encouraging to be um, one of your pastors. Um, you know, I think just even back with the, the, the pandemic, with near the back end of the COVID, um, some of you were very much pro-mask, and you wore your mask to church, and some of you, once the state mandate was lifted, you did not think masks were necessary, and you, and you didn't wear one. And what I love, you know, that could have been, and, and I listened to other pastors talk about how that was such like a dividing time in their church. What, what I love watching was I would see someone with a mask who I know had strong opinions about the masks talking to someone without a mask who had very strong opinions about not wearing a mask. And I saw you two just talking and enjoying each other, encouraging one another. I thought, man, that's, that's not normal. That, that's, that is unity among our diversity. That's the power of the Holy Spirit at work among you. Like, I, I'm just, I'm in awe. A unified church is just one aspect of the Holy Spirit's power from chapter 1. The second aspect of the power of the Holy Spirit is to use or to embolden ordinary, flawed, broken men and women to accomplish the Great Commission. In verse 15, Peter stands up, and he addresses the brothers. Remember, it wasn't that long ago when Peter had publicly denied Christ. 
And he, you know, he ran away and hid. Now he's emboldened to proclaim a public message. We see this again in a few chapters. I can't wait till we get to chapter 4. In chapter 4, Peter stands before a crowd, a crowd that probably contains some of the same very people who he denied knowing Christ. And now he is boldly proclaiming his loyalty to Christ. See, the Holy Spirit changes who you are. You cannot receive the Holy Spirit and continue being the same person that you used to be. It just doesn't make sense. It's not possible. Now, yes, there are times when your flesh will still find victories, but the Holy Spirit will convict you of your sin and lead you to confess that sin to God and to others. So God's plan to accomplish the Great Commission is to use ordinary, flawed men and women uh, to further his, his purposes. The church was God's plan A. That's amazing to me. And so we see the Holy Spirit brings unity to a diverse collective group. Next, we see the Holy Spirit empowering ordinary, flawed men and women to accomplish the Great Commission. Thirdly, we see the Holy Spirit giving discernment and wisdom to the church. So from verses 15 to the end of the chapter, Peter explains that um, since Judas had committed suicide, the disciples now needed to fill that empty position. And the way they did it was, was uh, to fill the empty position. They, they did so by casting lots. Lots was a practice that you see you know, sort of regularly in the Old Testament. Um, and it was done whenever there was like this important decision that needed to be made. And you didn't really know what to do, and so you'd cast lots. And so the Jews would take some item, something like dice, some form of dice. could be some stones. Maybe some of them were colored. Um, maybe they had little marks on them. Uh, and they would roll the dice, and then the dice would inform their decision. Um, I remember as a new believer in college, um, I, I just couldn't get enough of the Bible. I just loved the Bible as a new believer, especially the Old Testament. It just fascinated It, it was just fascinating to me. And um, I remember reading about casting lots, and I began to apply that to my life. And so um, for me, one of the most important decisions, I think, as a new believer in in college, you're trying to figure out, like, God, what do you want me to do? The the most important question is, Lord, should I ask this girl out or not? That's pretty much the most important thing in college. Uh, And so as a new believer, I would, you know, I'd practice these, you know, casting lots, and I would take, um, let's say, five quarters and I would pray, you know, Lord, if it be your will that this is the one, which is also bad theology, uh, if this girl is the one then I'm supposed to be with, then make these quarters fall on, you know, majority of these quarters fall on heads. And I would make my decisions off that. Uh, I don't encourage you to do that. Um, or sometimes I would, um, I would cast lots by putting a golf ball. I, would, I had like a little practice mat in my bedroom. And I would say, you know, Lord, if um, be your will, if you want me to ask this girl out, um, then I would make this putt. And so then, you know, when I would miss the putt, uh, which may not have anything to do, if we're honest, about the Lord's will, it may just my deficiency in my short game. And, and so when I would miss the putt, you know what I would do next. This is why this is so bad. I would say, okay, Lord, two of three, best of three, if this is, 
who you want me to ask out, if this is the one for me, then I would make two of three putts. You see this, this casting lots a lot in the Old Testament. This is like, maybe if you're familiar with the story of Gideon when he laid out the fleece. This is what Gideon did. And Gideon kind of did the same thing of the best of three. He, he laid it out the first time, and, you know, Lord, if it have dew on it, not the ground, and, you know, then I would know. And then it happens, and he's, well, maybe it always happens that way. So let me, let's do it the other way, Lord. Let's, the opposite happen. And then the Lord did it again. So the fleece served as a way for Gideon to discern what God wanted him to do. In Acts chapter 1, the lot fell to um, Matthias as being the replacement for Judas. But this is the last time you see lots being used in the Bible. You don't see the practice of lots anymore after Acts chapter 1. And I know this could be an argument from silence. Well, I mean, it is an argument from silence, which is not always the strongest argument. Um, But what happens in the very next chapter? In the very next chapter, the Holy Spirit comes. And I believe that once he comes, then this changes everything. There is a reason why we don't see the practice of lots anymore. It's because every believer now has the Spirit of God indwelling inside them to give them discernment and wisdom. The church has been given promises, like James chapter 1, verse 5, which says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Now, why didn't those apostles, those 11 men in Acts chapter 1, why didn't they pray this prayer from James chapter 1, verse 5? Well, it's because James hadn't written James chapter 1, verse 5 yet. Um, so because we have the Holy Spirit, because we now have the full counsel of God's word, and so, which contains promises like James chapter 1, verse 5, then we don't need to cast lots anymore. Um, we can come to the Lord in prayer. We can seek other counsel from others, but we don't need to, to cast lots. So these are a few aspects of the power that we um, will receive from the Holy Spirit. Then in verse 8, we see the second promise that Jesus makes to his disciples. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Okay, so let's, let's break this second promise down. First, notice that Jesus says, you will be my witness. It doesn't seem like we have a choice in the matter. He doesn't give us an option. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, then a part of that following is being a witness. That's what the word will means. He does not say, I'm hopeful that that you might get a chance to um, to witness, or if you get around to it today, then it would be great if you could be my witness. But he says, you will be my witness. So there is certainty in this promise. Being a witness is not an option for the believer. Witnessing is not something for this exclusive, special, elite group of Christians. Okay, you can't say, well, that's, you know, I, I, that, that's for those guys. You know, they're, 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 you know, they're more holy than I am. I'm, I'm really not there. Um, well, then you need to get there. That's the aim here. And so... If you have received the Holy Spirit, this is the way this passage reads. If you have received the Holy Spirit, then you will be 
his witness. I don't know how else to read this. Since witnessing witnessing is a responsibility for all believers, we probably need to understand what a witness is, what he does. A witness is an individual who, being present, personally sees or perceives a thing, or a beholder, a spectator, an eyewitness, or a person who gives testimony, as in a court of law. Now, I love how Luke's gospel and Acts, they just kind of fit really well together. So if you look at the last chapter of Luke, Luke 24, Jesus uses the same language as he does in this first chapter of Acts. They, they kind of just, they, they go really well together. Jesus says in Luke 24, verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. Well, what things? What are we witnesses of? If we look back just a few verses, Jesus explained what he means. Verse 46, and he, Jesus, said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father to you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power. From one eye. You see how, I mean, this is Acts 1 8 right here. What does Jesus command us to be witnesses to? To his death and resurrection. That's what it means to be his witness. That you would speak. A witness must use words, or at least write out or sign words, because there are no silent witnesses. You cannot witness about the death and resurrection of Christ with your lifestyle, it's impossible. So a witness of Jesus Christ speaks or testifies about Christ's death and resurrection. And to whom do we witness to? Well, it says here in verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the end of the earth. So now, if you'd like to dig a little deeper this week in your Bibles, I'm, I'm guessing a lot of you, as part of your New Year's resolutions, if you do those things, a lot of you probably had something to do with reading your Bible more. Well, if that was you, then I want to encourage you to read the book of Acts this week. And let verse 8 be your outline. And what I mean is you will see the Holy Spirit coming um, upon the believers in Jerusalem first, then in Judea, then to the Samaritans, and then to the Gentiles who are scattered out to the ends of the earth. So read Acts and then list out what chapters do you see the Holy Spirit coming to each of these peoples. It's pretty fascinating. So... Why does Jesus tell them to start in Jerusalem? Was Jerusalem more important than those in the the ends of the earth because they're Jews? Are they special? Is that why they're starting in Jerusalem? Well, I think there's a more simple answer to this question. Currently, where are the disciples in this passage? They're in Jerusalem. So Jesus is essentially saying, start witnessing where you are. So they start in Jerusalem, and then the circle gets a little bigger, So if you're looking at a map, you would draw these concentric circles like a bullseye, um, starting with Jerusalem. You have Jerusalem, it's a city. Then Judea is a region. And then we see Samaria. Samaria is also a region. It's also a city, similar to how, like, you know, Wayne is a city and a county. And and then then you have to the end of the earth. So in our context, you would say, like, Huntington, Cabell County, and then I'm not sure what Samaria would be. Um, Samaria was a place 
that the Jews looked down upon. So I don't know if you maybe look down upon Wayne County, maybe. Uh, This was because when the Jews were exiled, the northern part of Israel, which is where Samaria is located, they had a lot of intermarriages. So, So the Jews didn't look at Samaria as being like true Jews. So Samaria is, um, um, you know, this was a place that disciples, they wanted to avoid. Um, Jesus, if you think back to John's gospel, John chapter 4, Jesus took his disciples um, to Samaria. This is where they encountered the woman at the well. The disciples wanted to walk around to avoid Samaria. The Jews and Samaritans did not like each other. They were enemies. And Jesus commissions his followers to go to their enemies. Isn't that amazing? To Jerusalem, Judea. Let's skip Samaria because we don't really like them. No, Jesus says, you go even to them. So what does this mean for us today? It shows us that, that we aren't just called to be witnesses to people who are like us. Jesus is forcing his disciples, his church, to go to places where they are uncomfortable, to go to places that are challenging. By commissioning his church to go to the end of the earth, it shows us that the gospel transcends race, economics. The church is called to take the gospel to all nations. So I think of Cody and Savannah, who were here with us, you know, they're in Mexico right now, being trained to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to a people group who have never, there's no known Christian, no Bible in their language, no, no, no church. It's also interesting to think that when Jesus is writing this, and he's looking at his disciples and saying, start in Jerusalem, go to Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth, we're standing we, we are byproducts of the faithfulness of all these missionaries. Um, Huntington would have been um, to the end of the earth. And so we see the gospel going out now. So now we are part of that in the earth, and we're still taking the gospel to places who have never heard. And there are still many people groups, thousands of people groups, who have never heard the name of Jesus. And so... We, as a church, we, we are plan A to get the gospel to them. So that's why every month we pray for a different nation. Uh, we we want to keep missions in front of us. Um, and so I, I love being a part of a church that we have um, some missionaries already on the field. We have Cody and Savannah going. We have s- several of you who are going this summer. Uh, we want to be a church that takes verse 8 seriously. So these are some of the distinctions that make up a healthy church. I'm excited to get into the pastoral epistles. First Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, I'm writing these things so that you know how, uh, how the church ought to behave. And, and so we're going to be looking at what is a healthy church. And one of my prayers for 2023 is that we would be a church that continues to focus on all people. So I love that we're starting off the year focusing on special needs ministry because uh, that can often be a, a people group that's often neglected. So this year, like, as we think about Acts 1-8 in our own lives, like, God's calling us to start in Jerusalem. So that means your, your street. There are people on your street that need to hear the gospel. 
Then you got Judea and Samaria, so maybe those that are a little bit different than us. Yeah, they live around us, but they're just different. They look different. They dress differently than us. Maybe they're, maybe they're from a different nation. Maybe God's brought them to Huntington. And then you got those who maybe you wouldn't say this, but maybe you feel it at times that they're kind of an enemy. Like, you just really don't like being around them. They kind of drain all the energy out of you. Could be somebody you work with. Could be a neighbor. Somebody you just don't necessarily enjoy being around. God's calling you to be a witness even to them. And then obviously to those who live around the world. So I'm excited to see how God um, you know, uses our church to reach the nations this year. But I, I pray that the Lord would change and grow our hearts to love those who aren't very lovable. It's easy to serve those that we love, right? I, man, I love serving you guys. It's fun partnering in the gospel with you. But then, like, you know, just people on our street, people around the community, people that I encounter and do life with, man, sometimes they're just, they're not very lovable. And God calls us to love even them, to share the good news that he died for them. So as we turn our attention and prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, let this be a time of examination. Then you look at your life and you examine. Maybe, you, maybe you've done this this past week. I love, I love, you know, sometimes we can be very cliche with the New Year's resolution and all that kind of thing. And there's this idea of, you know, let your yes be yes, your no be no. And we don't need to, you know, we don't need to wait till New Year's to start resolutions. We always need to be committed to the Lord. But I love just the new year that it gives us a time just to start over, uh, make some changes. So let this time just, just examine your heart. Like, Lord, Lord what, what hidden sin may be in my heart right now that I need to confess, that I'm not even aware of right now? I just need to confess. I haven't been loving my neighbors well. I, I really don't care about witnessing to you, uh, about you. Uh, and, and so let this be a time where the Lord, just the Holy Spirit right now, who's indwelling in you, let him just speak to you. Let him convict you of sin. That's another part of his role, to convict sin. So let him convict sin. You be obedient to confess that sin. And then when you're ready, you come and take of the Lord's Supper. So if you're a guest, the Lord's Supper um, for us, we, we just have you, you, you come up front. We, we don't pass it out. You, you come up, and there'll be a couple of trays. Um, we're going to do things a little different. If you were here Christmas Eve, same as Christmas Eve, but we're going to have a, a tray of bread, and you'll take a piece of bread, and the bread just represents the body of Christ broken for you. So as you look at that bread, just know that it was once it was a whole piece of bread. Now it's cut up. Um, represents his body broken for you. And then the cup represents his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. So remember that his blood, that, that he had to die because of your sin. And we celebrate today that we can have life because he died. So whenever you're ready, you come. Let me, let me pray for us. Lord, we come this morning. I, I pray as a people of con confessing our sin that we would um, and we come to the table this morning thankful, thankful that, um, that you were a perfect sacrifice, that you died in our place, that, um, 
that we could have never lived the perfect life, that we needed you. So Lord, may these elements remind us of what you had to go through, that you suffered, that you were beaten, that you were mocked, you were pierced, so that we can have peace with God. So may this time of reflection just lead us to be faithful witnesses. May, may we not leave this place the same. May we be changed. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. Help us to examine ourselves so that we don't come to the table lightly. I, I pray that once we've confessed that we come celebrating what you've done for us. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So whenever you're ready, you, you come.